Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates. America competes. We're learning a lot about what's motivating both parties right now, and primaries are great for this. I'm Annie Reese. This is Politico Dispatch. It's just like a microscope for examining what you know what's going on, like at the molecular level in the party bases, and it, it the, the sea is angry out there. <laughs> the sea is angry. Out there. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Politico's molecular biologist Scott Bland. <laughs> More than half the states with primary elections have already held their primaries. On the show today, the three most important things we found out from the results so far. So congratulations on being done with primaries for June. Yeah, it was a long couple months. We had primaries late every Tuesday from May 3rd until June 28th with a break for Memorial Day week. So it was it was a lot of late nights. <laughs> so many late nights. So I'm curious about what you've learned from the collection of those late nights. Is there a big pattern that you've been seeing from the primaries overall? And how did the elections this past Tuesday reflect that? Yeah, I think the big pattern that I have been thinking about the last few days, partly because I'm, I'm working with a reporter who's writing a story about this, is that it seems like there's just a lot of like potential energy kind of stored up in the bases of both parties right now. Both parties, but probably more so Republicans. Mm-hmm. And it's just looking for any excuse to like let loose on congressional incumbents, longtime members of Congress who for, you know, maybe one or two reasons are perceived to have like stepped out of line with mm. the party. The best example that we found is Republicans who voted for a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th attacks on the Capitol. <laughs> and if you look through all the primary results so far, the party primaries, and this is not including June 28th because we don't have final numbers yet. But mm-hmm. if you add up all the primaries from March through through June um, that we have final results on so far, the average Republican who voted for that commission got 62% in their primary. The rest of the Republican incumbents running for re-election got an average of 75% in their primary. The average Democrat got 91% in their primary, mm. right? 62% actually, you know, it, obviously like that works out to a, you know, a comfortable double digit victory, right? Mm-hmm. But the context is that that's actually terrible for a congressional incumbent. Interesting. For the longest time, even if you got challenged, most incumbents were pulling 80, 80% or more. Mm. That's changed for a number of reasons, but more and more Republicans as we walk through primary season have been getting pulled into tough primaries Some of them because of the January 6th commission vote, some of them for that and or voting to impeach Donald Trump, some of it because of a lot of other things, of backing the bipartisan infrastructure bill, of various other things that are perceived to be slights to the base or to party leadership or to Trump himself. Mm. And, you know, it's not just Republicans, right? We've had some some pretty major Democratic primaries. We've had progressive challengers come close to knocking off longtime incumbents in Illinois and Texas. We had one succeed in defeating a longtime moderate blue dog Democrat in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's kind of some of that there. But I think especially on on the Republican side, there, there's just a lot of of anger in the voting base right now. And some of it is getting directed at the party's own leaders in Washington at the moment. Interesting. And does that anti-incumbent sentiment, do you think that that will change 
your thinking about the prospects for the House in terms of number of Republican seats picked up over Democrat? Um, you know, that's, that's pretty tricky. I mean, there, there's obviously like a lot of other stuff going on with that right now and, and questions about like, oh, is the generic ballot in flux after, after the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court and mm. some other stuff like that. My inclination is to think that all, all of this, the, once primary season is over, these base Republican voters are going to turn that rage on, on Democrats. And it's, it's going to be really, it's going to continue to be a, a, a rough looking political environment for Democrats. But, you know, we'll see. Obviously, projecting out in the future is not um not something we can we can do exactly but every every indication up to this moment that we've gotten about how the political environment has been developing is that it's developing into a bad year for democrats and a good year for republicans but i think you know it's possible that some of the same forces built in to doing that are also making this a tough primary year for some republicans that there's just anger at washington um concern about the economy and like a general feeling of unrest that like everyone is is feeling right now after after covid i think this is one of the ways that it is coming through in politics another big thing we've seen is democratic groups spending a ton of money to try to impact these republican primaries basically pumping money into races to try to pick more extreme candidates that they think they can beat which i always think of as the claire mccaskill todd akin strategy how did that work out for democrats this season yeah, like I, you know, but and to to be clear, this is a strategy that both parties use on occasion. I remember Republican super PAC ads running in Iowa in winter 2016, tacitly boosting Bernie Sanders. Mm. Uh, you know, he, oh, he's too left wing. He loves too many liberal policies. <laughs> <laughs> but that said, I feel like Democratic political operatives just love this so much to to like a very weird degree they get like misty eyed talking about like how claire mccaskill won or how harry reed won his last election before that huh. or even if you go further back gray davis the former governor of california before he got turfed out of office in a recall he won his 2002 election after kind of selecting the opponent he wanted for his second term so th- this is something that we've seen before what we've never seen is the like this amount of it, this degree of it, this amount of money going into it. Hmm. A lot of that has happened in Illinois. And it's easy to spend a lot of money on this sort of thing when you are a billionaire governor like J.B. Pritzker is, the Democratic governor there. And he wanted to choose his opponent. And he did. Instead of running against the more moderate veteran black mayor who was the initial favorite in the Republican primaries running against a very kind of MAGA-aligned state senator now, Darren Bailey, who, Hmm. who won the primary big um, after Pritzker and Democrats spent like 30-some million dollars <laughs> on ads. So it worked out for Democrats in Illinois, but did it work out for them elsewhere? It did not work out for them in Colorado. They tried it in Colorado. Didn't work in the Senate race. Didn't work in the governor's race. Didn't work in an open new House seat. You know, th- they did it a little bit in Pennsylvania with Doug Mastriano, the, the far-right Republican who won the nomination there. But he, he was probably going to win the nomination anyway. Although it, it raises the question to me of like why they would have wanted to do this in the first place. Because Mastriano, Democrats in Pennsylvania and elsewhere will say, is a very dangerous guy. He would be in charge of elections in Pennsylvania if he won. And he he's an election conspiracy theorist. Mm. He would not have certified the 2020 election results. So, there, you know, there's some kind of like rhetoric and action at odds with each other there. And in, in terms of this, this particular Democratic strategy, by and large, it, it's not working very often and it's not something that does work very often this is not necessarily a desperation play but like this is something you do if you feel like you need to do it because it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of a low percentage play and like we said before this is 
shaping up to be a tough election for Democrats. And they're kind of looking for a few percentage points here or there any way they can. And this is one of the ways they've, they've hit on in a number of races. Yeah. Now that we're at this point in the primary season, what about Trump's power this season? How important has he ultimately proved to be in some of these races? Yeah. I don't think it would be controversial to say that Trump's endorsement is still like the single kind of biggest thing Mm. you can get in a Republican primary. But it's very clearly now not the only thing that matters. Back when he was president, right, he would go on Twitter and he would just like blow up the ground beneath Republican senators like Bob Corker and Jeff Flake, Mm -hmm. who just decided not to even bother running for reelection. And now, especially in governor's races, we've seen him go in and lose to candidates who have been able to credibly argue that they're very conservative and in line with the base on not just ABC, but ABCDEFG, you know, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and maybe just, you know, th- there's like a few elements of difference. Georgia stands out in particular, right? Because Brian Kemp is a very conservative Republican governor who's always been like very closely aligned with the party base. And yeah, he wouldn't go along with Donald Trump's falsehoods about the 2020 election results, and he wouldn't stand in the way of certifying Georgia's vote. But like on everything else, he's been right there. And so voters didn't really glom on to Trump's challenge to him through David Perdue, Trump's recruited and endorsed and funded candidate. I think it was something like 70-30. There were actually quite a, quite a few 70-30 races against Trump endorsees in Georgia, which is interesting. So I think that's that's my that's my overall take. He's still a force in the party, probably still the single biggest force, but he's not an unstoppable force. What are the next major dates on the calendar that you're looking at? Well, asking me to choose, you know, major and minor date, primary, it's like asking me to choose between my children. We've got a, we've got a wonderful, oh my God, Scott. we've got a wonderful small primary day coming up in Maryland on July 19th. <laughs> oh uh, the next big one is August 2nd. It really kind of starts back off with a bang. We've got a whole bunch of interesting stuff in, in Arizona. There's a, a big Senate race there, obviously, open governor's race. Uh, Donald Trump is involved in, in both of those in, in Kansas. There's a ballot measure. Uh, where voters will decide whether or not abortion is considered a right under the state constitution, um, mm-hmm. which obviously huge potential impact there um, with the fall of Roe v. Wade earlier this month. In Michigan, governor's race, bunch of battleground house races, secretary of state race with a Donald Trump endorsed election conspiracy theorist candidate on there. Missouri, there's a huge Senate primary where the, the kind of disgraced ex-governor Eric Greitens is is running in a very crowded Republican field and there, there's concern that he would either, well, I mean, there's concern basically no matter what, if he were to win the primary among some Republicans, that he would either potentially lose them the seat in the election or that he would actually get to Washington and be like a like huge destructive uh, force. And that's just August 2nd. There's a whole bunch of other stuff. There's Wisconsin. There's a bunch of other states. So August is going to be a pretty big primary month. But, I, you know, I think just running through those, like a lot of the themes that I just talked about, right, are are, are pretty similar. Hmm. Fractiousness and unrest in the party bases, Trump's influence on Republicans, these, you know, moderate versus progressive fights going on in Democratic seats. New York should be a really interesting one for that at the end of August. I mean, it's funny, like a lot of these races are in general election mode already. And then there's some, you know, New Hampshire, they're not going to pick their nominees until early September. And then it's just like, you know, kind of sprinting off toward election day from there. But there's a lot of stuff still left to settle for both parties in August. Scott Bland, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Love being on Dispatch. Also in the news, President Joe Biden announced Wednesday at NATO's summit in Madrid that the U.S. will send more destroyers, air defense systems, and redeploy troops along NATO's eastern front in the coming months. 
Moves will add significant firepower to the continent and signal a deepened American commitment to NATO's eastern countries, which are worried Russia could continue its march westward if they're successful in Ukraine. And Lev Parnas, an associate of Rudy Giuliani, who was a figure in President Trump's first impeachment investigation, was sentenced Wednesday to a year and eight months in prison for fraud and campaign finance crimes. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch includes music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening.